Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with historian Annette Gordon-Reed and painter Titus Kafar. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Thank you, Benjamin. Please join me uh, again in giving Benjamin a round of applause. Here. He and his words and his music will be with us uh, throughout uh, the weekend, and uh, you'll get chances uh, in between different uh, sessions as well to spend time uh, visiting with him. Um, Welcome, everybody. It is a beautiful thing to see all of you here tonight. Um, My name is Eric Liu. I'm the co-founder of Citizen University. And I'm just so incredibly moved to see you all here. Um, And I was moved from the first note that came out of Ben's mouth, Um, the pitch, the timbre of it, there's something about it that I think is uh, the pitch and the timbre of our political moment right now in the country um, is one where people are, there's tension, and then the expression and the release of that tension is something that is uh, uh, both hard to bear and necessary to bear. And, uh, um, and, And so much of the energy that is in this room uh, tonight is testament uh, to the latter interpretation that Ben said, that, uh, or, or actually the first interpretation. The latter interpretation was, why do these things keep happening over and over again? Uh, but the first interpretation is, hey, we know what to do. But just because we can be guided by history in knowing what to do in times of division and trial and social fracture and scapegoating, Uh, doesn't mean that we, in fact, will do what we know we need to do. And that's where fellowship and the company of others and the presence of others is literally encouraging. It gives us courage. It gives us power to do that, not in isolation, not in in loneliness, not not in the kind of uh, fake community of social media, but actually in person. And... I'm so grateful to all of you for coming here in person. I'm grateful as well to um, what we hope are the millions of people around the world right now watching our live stream on Facebook Live. Um, But there is something special and irreplaceable about being face-to-face on a conference whose topic is reckoning and repair. Uh, And I want to thank, in addition to all all of you for coming here, I want to invite you, you have these programs here, and um, I, I want to start with the fine print. Uh, actually, in the back of the program, you will see uh, who Citizen University is. Our team, uh, Ben Phillips, Arista Burwell-Chen, Janae Kane, Catherine Sims, Lorette Hanna, uh, and our uh, Truman Fellows, Bianca Guerrero, Hasher Nassar, and Jacob Miller. Uh, and then the box below that in the fine print, it's important to read the fine print, um, is by my lights, and I go to a lot of conferences, um, the nation's best team at putting together events, uh, and that is the team at Jubilee Event Engineers. Uh, Alex Martin, Sasha Summer Cousineau, who we call Voice of Goddess, because it's actually her voice you hear over the mics telling us to, to do stuff, uh, Sasha. 
uh, Mira Bodwar, uh, Justice Beitzel, Taylor Roden, uh, David Verdaki, uh, ba Bob and Ramsey, and Tim Sanders, who is our uh, graphic designer here. So um, please join me in thanking them for making it possible. And on our program as well, you can see um, the list of sponsors and partners uh, and in-kind sponsors, uh, all of whom have been so great to play with us uh, over the next couple of days. Um, I, I wanted to keep my framing remarks uh, short here. Um, tomorrow morning, uh, as you can see from the conference program, we'll get to go deeper into these themes of reckoning and repair. Um, but I, I wanted to say a couple of thoughts uh, to help us, to help prime us for how we're going to experience each other over the course of the next uh, evening, this evening and tomorrow. Um, and actually, um, to perhaps help do that, uh, in this theme of reckoning repair, there's an image I want to share with you. Um, and can we put that image up? I'm not going to tell you a lot about this image. I think talk about pictures worth a thousand words. Its title is Beneath the Myth of Benevolence. And it is by an artist who you're going to meet in just a moment and hear a bit from. But the one thing that I want to observe about this image is that it is one instantiation of the task before us right now. And that is not to obliterate the past, but to reckon with it, to look at the layers beneath it, to look at what was always there beneath the official images and iconography of our lives together as Americans. And to be able to peel the top layer back and see peering back at you the history that was there all the time is not just what makes this a powerful and beautiful work of art, uh, but it is, again, a guide for how I would like us to experience each other tonight and tomorrow. Over the course, actually, of the previous 24 hours, our team at Citizen University um, got to host two different kind of pre-conference convenings, the first one of which was uh, our first ever gathering of what we call the Youth Collaboratory, 25 remarkable high school students from all around the United States um, who are here with us and, and you'll meet throughout the course of tonight and uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, and then uh, today, we had a similar such uh, gathering behind closed doors with something we call the Civic Collaboratory. And in both of those gatherings, the fundamental spirit was one of learning. And I think learning, <laughs> learning is a virtue that is uh, uh, overlooked in our times right now. Learning with humility, learning with a spirit of respect, and learning with a spirit of imagination is something that we're, our team, in curating and putting together the program and the people and the gathering here, um, have been moved by this spirit of learning with humility, with respect, and with imagination. And what that means and what we really began to hear in ways that were sometimes very soaringly moving and sometimes very searingly kind of awkward or painful over the course of the last 24, 36 hours with our various convenings was that when you do that kind of learning and you're being real with each other and you are experiencing each other in person, 
that what that means is that you've got to be against something and for something. What you've got to be against is the idea of false choices. The idea that the troubles we face in this country are either a function of race or a function of class. That people with whom you disagree are either evil or ignorant. That politics itself can and ought to be placed into these convenient binary boxes. Being anti-false choices has got to be one of the things that we do over the course of the next day and a half as we reckon with each other and learn more about our history and about our contemporary challenges in American life. The thing we've got to be pro is pro-listening. I mean deep, full-body listening. I mean listening not in order to prepare your rebuttal, listening not in order to spot the weakness in what's being said, but listening for the full texture of both words and what lies beneath words, of what's on the layer that can be presented and the layer beneath. Because beneath everything you're going to hear today, and sometimes it will be things from the stage, sometimes it will be things in your table conversations or in your breakout sessions or walking from here to uh, somewhere else on campus, what you're going to hear is one surface frequency. But as the Invisible Man of Ralph Ellison's novel said in closing that novel, who knows what's on the frequencies below? So listening for those frequencies below, for the pain, for the fear, for the human instinct to justify oneself has got to be what we do when we say we are pro-listening. Pro-listening isn't just, oh, you're different from me. Let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. Let's kind of make a show of that. It's really going deep in that way. Well, in this mode of being congenitally resistant to false choices and being incredibly gifted at that deep, full-body listening. Um, I'm super excited that joining us tonight, but also throughout the conference uh, tomorrow, uh, is my new friend, Krista Tippett. Krista, as some of you know, is a journalist, broadcaster, um, creator of the public radio, and public radio show and podcast, On Being. And one of the things we are very excited about this year at this conference is that this marks the start of a partnership between Citizen University and On Being, uh, where Krista is going to be leading uh, two deep plenary conversations uh, that go for the length of her podcast, about an hour. And those conversations are going to be recorded uh, and then broadcast uh, to her millions large national audience. Uh, and so we're really excited and grateful to the team at On Being uh, and we're really, when Chris and I got connected and began to contemplate the ways we might uh, play together, um, it just seemed like such a natural thing uh, to do, uh, to bring her here so that she could bring you and us to the rest of the country. Um, I'll invite um, Krista and our 
first two panelists and speakers uh, up in a moment whom she will introduce. Uh, but I want to say as a logistical matter, um, because we are going to be on air and we're going to have a cute little on air sign in a minute uh, on the screen to remind us, um, we ask you just to be conscious of sound. Um, we are in a concrete box uh, uh, with metal chairs. Um, and so please, as if you feel you must get up for one reason or another, and, uh, and the restrooms are on either wing of the hall, um, please do so in a way that is as quiet as possible. Um, of course, uh, the, the, Chris has done this in rooms uh, uh, filled with audiences before, and so the noise of the presence of other people is not what's the issue, but we'd like to keep to a minimum um, uh, the noise that we can during the recording. So, um, with that logistical note, let me just, uh, uh, before I introduce Krista um, and our first two speakers here, again, say thank you to you all. Um, this work right now, in this moment, of reckoning and repair, um, you might be asking, what do you mean exactly? Uh, reckoning with what? Repair of what? And I want you to keep holding on to those questions. I don't want to stand here yet with, or ever, perhaps, with answers. Uh, we are at a time that I think the challenges of and the historical echoes of are self-evident at a time where well before a particular president was elected, this country was in a multi-decade slide downward, a multi-decade drift away from a sense of having any notion of who is us a multi-decade process of disintegration, a multi-decade concentration of wealth and voice, a multi-decade rigging, stacking, and completely blowing of games of participation, whether economic or civic, a multi-decade process in which so many people in so many domains wanted to rip that first layer of official BS establishment iconography and imagery and language of American politics and say, I don't accept that top layer anymore. Now, am I talking about Black Lives Matter? Sure. Am I talking about the Trump train? You bet. Am I talking about Bernie Sanders fans? You know I am. Am I talking about dreamers? Am I talking about $15 now? Am I talking about indivisible today? Am I talking about all of these folks in all of these domains who are saying that the inherited structure of our establishment politics no longer serves us? Yes, I am. And this moment of this great pushback from the bottom up, from all different quarters in this country, is a moment that we have to reckon with. You can't pin it on one president. You can't pin it on one act. This is where we've been as a country, drifting for several decades. And reckoning means not figuring out whether it's you, 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 or you who's to blame for it. Reckoning means owning each of our piece of it and asking what it is that we did or failed to do to bring us here. Only then, and that is a big then, only then are we going to be allowed in any meaningful way to get to the work of repair. So with that, let me welcome to the stage Krista Tippett, Annette Gordon-Reed, and Titus Kapper.
Thank you, Eric. Got to say amen. There was a little sermon in there. I liked it. Um, I love the title for this gathering, Reckoning and Repair, Two R Words, Two Different and Generative Energies, to add to the other R word, which has gotten a lot of, had, had its moment recently, resistance. Um, and, I, and, and the idea has been to begin this evening, to, to, to begin this, this uh, day and a half of reflection with reckoning with history. And I absolutely think that's the right place to start. Um, earlier this year, I interviewed Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote this book, The Warmth of Other Suns, about yet another piece of American history that we all should have learned in school and didn't. Um, the migration from north to south um, of, of, of black Americans, the, the, this, this, this huge swath of people who, as she says, had to act, or the only people in the history of our country, citizens who had to act like immigrants in order to be treated like citizens. Um, and one thing Isabel said is, you know, if you go to the doctor, they won't begin to diagnose you. They won't begin to treat you until they, before, until they take your history. Um, and right now, there are questions that we are all asking. There's, you know, on all sides, as Eric said, of our life together. You know, how did we get here? What just happened? And most importantly, how shall we live? How do we live forward? How do we live forward together? Um, and this reckoning and repair mean facing history we haven't fully grappled with, whether the subject is electoral politics or criminal justice or racial healing or freedom of speech. In fact, a long view of history shows how all of these flashpoints are intimately connected and also connected to the ways the same blind spots that have brought these dynamics and others to a crisis point right now. This is reckoning we've put off and put off and put off. And in this room of civic reflection and social courage, I'm hoping that for the next 58 minutes and 13 seconds, I'm in radio, so I, I believe in the clock, um, we can explore what is going on more boldly and searchingly um, than often happens, especially in this moment where we have this cultural reflex and this media reflex to frantically dissect what happened in the last 20 minutes, right? We're not going to talk about health care tonight. <laughs> um, I want to pull back the lens to the last 20 months and the last 20 years and the last 20 decades. And I can't imagine a better, a more exquisite pair of conversation partners to do that than Annette Gordon-Reed, a citizen historian, and Titus Kafer. Is that right? How did you? Kafar. Kafar. I asked him how to pronounce it. Um, and Titus Kafar, who is a citizen artist. Um, so, but I want to start, um, I just want to begin with starting with um, a hearing a little bit from each of you about the roots in your life, um, in your formation, um, of the, your ability to see and hold complexity in history in yourself and to, to hold it before the rest of us. And Annette, you know, as few modern historians have done, you have really rearranged a fundamental 
chapter in the American imagination about our history, cracking open history we thought we knew of the great icon Thomas Jefferson and revealing that it is even more complicated than the fact that he was at one and the same time a freedom fighter and a slaveholder. Um, and you grew up in East Texas, and you've said that very early in your life, um, as a young girl, you became fascinated with history, and in particular with the paradox of this figure of Jefferson. And I wonder, you know, what in the background of your childhood encouraged that, that curiosity and that clarity in you? Well, I, as you said, grew up in East Texas, and I integrated the school district. I was the first black child to go to the white school in our school district, and I was um, in first grade, and I was introduced to the idea that politics mattered, that race was a thing, and that we had a history, that this came from someplace. And I, you know, just from being in this situation where I had to, you know, integrate, I had to crack a code, crack a social convention, um, gave me a sort of insight, made me start to think about how we got here. Well, it's also I mean, growing I mean, up in the South. History was something you, you were making. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah, history was something that I was making, and I was very aware of that. I yeah. remember being in the classroom, and they would bring like delegations of people to come and stare, you know, in the doorway to see it. Now, how is this working? You know, uh, so I had a sense of being on display and having a sense that history mattered. And I began to think that I was a part of a group of people who had been on a journey. And my journey was just one of those, and that we were going somewhere. So if we were going somewhere, we'd been somewhere. And I was interested to find out where we had been. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it's interesting in, in the way you talk about discovering Jefferson, for example, even then. And later on, even after you had written the book about him and and Sally Hemings and that whole story, um, that you continued to find him, what did you say, a magnificent and horrifying figure, I mean, all at the same time. Well, yes, he was a multifaceted, as we all are, Yeah. incredibly complicated, yeah. but somebody who existed at the forefront of his society. Mm-hmm. And so we see all of that, in, in, you know, right there out in the open, sort of living as this public person, an individual who wanted to have a mark on society and doing a lot of good things and a lot of things that were not so great. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's studying him is a study of America in many, many ways, because mm-hmm. so many of the paradoxes, so many of the dilemmas that exist in his life are in the country. So it's, I mean, he's interesting, but his connection, the way he um, personifies so much of the conflict that we have is even more interesting. Mm-hmm. And Titus... Um you collapse timelines on canvas. Um, I want to just read some words uh, of yours about your work. Um, I paint and I sculpt, often borrowing from the historical canon, and then alter the work in some way. I cut, crumple, shroud, shred, stitch, tar, twist, bind, erase, break, tear, and turn the paintings and sculptures I create reconfiguring them into works that nod to hidden narratives and begin to reveal unspoken truths about the nature of history. You've said that you've observed that history, you know, you've, you've known it many times in your life that history, as you learn it, is at best incomplete and often fiction. And you grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I wonder, 
how do you trace like what planted this fearlessness and creativity with which you attend to history on behalf of all the rest of us? Well, I started painting really late. Um, I had already sort of constructed my ideas about the world. I was about 27 when I, when I made my first painting. Really? And I was taking an art history class. And in this art history class, it was one of those survey classes where you try to teach way too much in a semester. So you start <laughs> with cave paintings and end with de Kooning. Um, <laughs> so in that class, when I, when I looked at the textbook at the beginning of the semester, I looked in the book and there were about 14 or so pages on black people in painting. Now it didn't seem like much, it wasn't much in a book that was like 400 pages. Um, it seemed strange to me, but I remember thinking, at least it's here. Now, it included every time a black person was represented in a painting that they thought was significant. So it wasn't even just black painters, it no. was no, black, black people wow. In a no, it was, just, it was just in general. Yeah. And so I sat through that class um, and, I, and I did well in the class and really enjoyed the professor in that class. But uh, when we got to that section, the day of class when we got to that section, uh, the professor went to the uh, front of the classroom and, and said that uh, we don't have time to go through this section, so we're going to, we're going to skip over it. And I was the only uh, African-American in the class, and I raised my hand, and I said, uh, I've been really looking forward to this. And clearly the author thought it was significant, so maybe we could figure something out. She said, Titus, I don't have time for this. We're not going to go through this. And I said, well, I, is there a time that we could possibly talk about this? I asked her to meet her in office hours, talk to her in office hours. Long story short, um, she never taught. She never taught that. Um, and it became very clear to me that if I wanted to know that history, I was going to have to seek it out on my own. And so being that I wanted to make images, not just write about those images, I had to sort of manipulate what I had and work with what I had to create a narrative that I didn't see or hear. Mm. And that's when you started painting? Th that's why? Well, I didn't hear that question. Is that when you started painting? When you? That's... That's when, I mean, I think people would say that's when the work got political. Yeah. I, I, I say that's when the work got personal. Mm. Um, so, Annette, you wrote, um, you wrote this really interesting and, um, uh, and hopeful, but also, also reality-based article. <laughs> In 2008, after the election of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. um, actually, also, one thing you pointed out in that article is that, that um, Barack Obama did not get a majority of white votes in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, um, but also then I, realized, I learned that most um, Democratic presidents haven't gotten the majority of white votes. One of the things you pointed out was that um, for you, the Obama, to, Obama candidacy... Um, as you said, was a bet that the conventional wisdom of, about what we knew of white Americans was faulty or incomplete. Mm -hmm. And that you also had that experience when you wrote this book with this revelation about our founding father, mm -hmm. um, uh, that you expected there to be huge resistance to this idea mm -hmm. of the relationship with, between Thomas Jefferson and his slaves. And that's, that's not what you encountered. So your, your imagination started to expand as well at that point. 
Yes, yes, I expected resistance. I think most people, many people in, in, in the United States had believed that the story was true. The real opposition had been among historians who did not like the story because if you, if you have a man and so suddenly give him a, a person that he's lived with for 38 years and four kids, that changes the narrative of his life and that means you have to deal with it. Yeah. You can't just, they can't just be side characters. They have to be part of the story. And so there was real resistance to that. And I think there had been some changes in attitudes about Jefferson in the 90s, started in the 60s really with the civil rights movement and people began to think about founding fathers as slaveholders and so forth. But by the time the 90s started, uh, you know, there had been other critiques of him, but I was still expecting to be the kind of resistance that had existed, um, you know, among the older generation of historians. Mm. And I went to Virginia and I'd give talks in Virginia and I'd be sort of, oh God, what is it gonna be like? I'm in Richmond, I'm in Fredericksburg or whatever. And people sometimes would come up to me with their own stories. Whites would come up to me with their own stories about their families that had been hidden, things right. that they didn't talk about. Um, so Southerners knew this. Right, because as you say, his, this was an American life. This is an American life, yeah. and that kind of thing happened in the South. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that it did, and most Southerners understood it. But it's the kind of thing that you know but you don't talk about. Families have secrets, mm -hmm. communities have secrets, and they whisper it, but they don't talk about it, even though it's apparent in the faces of African-American people who are all different colors, different hair textures and so forth. It's always been there, yeah. but it's always some phantom, you know, traveling salesman or phantom person who came to visit <laughs> one time. It was right. never anybody that anyone cared about. It had to be somebody who was off and you wouldn't have to write about. And so the reckoning was actually saying slavery was not just about making people work um, for no money. Slavery created a mingled bloodline um, between African-Americans and whites and acknowledged and unacknowledged. But that's, that shows the complexity of the tragedy yeah. in all, all aspects of the institution. I mean, you also wrote in that same article um, noting that, you know, and I, I feel like this is something that people on all sides of the political spectrum were able to celebrate and acknowledge that that, that election of a black president mm -hmm. was just this magnificent moment. Mm -hmm. It was a stunning moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it said something. Yes. Um, and then, but you also said racism is no easy foe. The election of one man will not by itself be enough to overcome the history that has given a race its meaning in the United States. Um, and then here we are, uh, you know, eight years, eight, nine years later, in the wake of another election, which could not be more different, mm -hmm. in which there was also a narrative of, of white Americans, also a hidden narrative of white Americans, and a lot of irony to that because... Um, you know, many, many causes and layers of causes, including economic dislocation, but also white Americans being the subject of some of the pathologies and injustices that were created for African Americans and for African American communities. So, you know, as I, as I thought about sitting down with the two of you, I thought, you know, I wonder, with a long view of history, you know, should we be so surprised by the roller coaster 
of the American psyche that's been reflected in politics and and uh, and and public policy um, these last years and these last months. Are are you surprised? Are 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 you watching this with a perspective, with some questions? Um, that you would like to see more out front in our deliberation. I'm, I'm curious about both, how both of you think about that. You want to take that first? No, 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 sure. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not surprised. I wish I, wish I was surprised. I wasn't surprised. Um, We've gone through this as a country. I mean, we were talking about this before. We've gone through this as a country. Whenever there's this moment of sort of, um, you know, after the Civil War, um, Reconstruction, and then we went through this, and then it, I don't want to go through the history. We've we've gone through this. So no, it wasn't it wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised by it. What I was surprised by was folks that I had relationships with before, folks who I respect deeply, Republicans. I, you know, I, don't, I don't really consider myself a Democrat or a Republican. I, I like to engage people and have conversations with them and you put certain labels in it. It just becomes really difficult. But folks who consider themselves Republicans who I had deep relationships with for a very long time um, are responding differently to me. That I'm surprised by. Um, I'm surprised that the, the years of investment in our relationship, and many relationships, don't account for more. Um, I'm, so in, in my personal relationships, I've found that surprising. But in the sort of broader context, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't found it as surprising. Mm-hmm. Well, all the things that you said about the, the sort of backlash or the reaction to you know, want two steps forward and then, you know, maybe three steps back or whatever after Reconstruction. Every time there seems to be some sort of progress on the racial front, there's a backlash. And so that was one of the things that I was alluding to. It was not, I didn't, this wasn't going to, it was clear this wasn't going to solve everything by electing a black president. I suppose the thing that I'm surprised about is not so much on the racial front um, because you know, I knew that there were many, many people who saw the election of Barack Obama as, as, a, as, a, as you said, as sort of a joyous thing all mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. People yeah. said, you know, they did it. They were actually able to do this. And some people saw that as a sort of a herald of a brave new world in a good way, and other people saw it as a nightmare. And this is some of the people, at least some of the people who are, you know, who were on the other side this time, uh, of the Democrats this time would be would fall into that category, though by no means all people. I think I much, was much more surprised by the idea that um, Americans were willing to um, try someone who had never held office or who'd never sworn an oath to the United States in the military or anything like that. It's that's, you know, people always say, you know, we need to have a businessman do these kinds of things. You know, it's Perot. I sort of thought that those people kind of run as a third party candidate and they are there sort of, in their view, speaking truth to power and sort of, you know, exhorting people. But I didn't really think that we would. I mean, that's that is the most surprising thing to me about it is that someone who had no experience that we would turn over the most important country in the world to 
the most powerful country in the world. I mean, it's, it's in, and I'm sure everybody in this room understands that the United States, what it represents in the world. I mean, we don't pay as much attention to what's going on. I lived in England um, uh, 2014 and 2015, and the news is just full of the United States. What is the United States doing? Because what we do uh, matters all over the world. And so I, I was, that is what surprised me more than mm -hmm. the, con mm -hmm. the politics, the contours of the, the ideas, the policy, it's just the notion of a person who was inexperienced who would be, be president. You know, I've wondered if, um, if, if what the election of Barack Obama did if it was not inevitable that at, at one and the same time this remarkable thing would have and happen given our history, mm -hmm. that also it would surface all the unfinished business mm -hmm. in our midst for us to really meet that, to be worthy of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Titus, you... Um, well, your work has covered so many subjects over the last years, but many people know the painting that you did after Ferguson. And of course, also in these years, this phenomenon of violence towards black men and women, especially, you know, and, and, and Michael Brown. And I mean, you know, we now have this list. But it, it is a similar phenomenon to what you described. And I mean, this, this had been happening in our midst all along, even as we patted ourselves on the back through Democratic presidencies and Republican presidencies um, with white presidents and with a black president. Um, and it's kind of the iPhone that, as much as anything else, brought it to our attention. Um, but it's also something you'd lived with, and you've, and Annette, you've lived with, yeah. right? And uh, we weren't naming it. No, I mean it. In the black community, it's not everyone. Every, there was no. That was not a shock. That was not a surprise. Yeah. Everybody knew that. I mean, um, I've been stopped at gunpoint by police officers when Bush was president. <laughs> I was stopped at gunpoint when Obama was president. Um, for. You know, going back to personal versus political, I, when time asked me to make that painting, I wasn't making, I was already working on a painting because I had just had an experience with my brother in New York. I was adopted when I was 15, um, but I still am very, very much in contact with my family. And uh, my mother had sent my brother to, to stay with me for a little bit because he was getting into trouble um, back in Michigan. And uh, I was supposed to do my elderly brother duty and talk to him about how he was getting in trouble and how he needs to stay out of trouble. Um, it's not a good time to be dealing with police. Uh, it's, it's prison now, you know, it's not juvenile hall. Um, and uh, my brother and I didn't have a whole lot in common at first. Started talking day one. I, it was very clear to me that he was deeply interested in shoes and women. And that was, that was it. And the, the extent of wow. our conversation was very limited as a result of that. Um, Day two, um, less women, more shoes. <laughs> um, and day three, something happened. Um, the conversation opened up a little bit. And uh, we started talking about things and he started opening up a little bit. And he finally said to me, he said, hey, why don't we go see some of your artwork in New York? And I was shocked. He's never really talked about wanting to see my work or anything like that. I said, no problem. Took him to New York. And I expected that we were going to be looking at galleries for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then we would move on um, and go get shoes. I thought that's, 
thought that's what was gonna happen. Um, but we ended up going in and out of galleries for two hours. And he was just so excited about the artwork, stuff that, that was really conceptual and stuff that I thought, this is too heavy for him, he's not gonna like it. But he was deeply engaged by it. And so as we left those galleries, after this two hours of walking. And so what year is this? Is this just a couple of years ago, right? It was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, after we left the galleries, after you know looking for two hours, um, I said, this is my opportunity to talk to him. So, we're walking um, down uh, uh, 11th, 10th Avenue between 26th and 27th Street in New York. And I'm saying to him, listen, mom is very concerned about all the things that you're getting yourself involved in. And literally, as I'm having that conversation, an undercover police car speeds up to us. D police officers jump out of the car with hands on their guns and tell us to get against the wall and start demanding my ID and all this other stuff. I say that to say, Everyone in my community already knew that was happening. I wasn't making that painting because I was trying to make some point. The, the things that I engage in are because I feel deeply about them. And I, the only way that I've found that works for me to really work through these issues is to get into the studio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in, a, in my hometown. It was very much known there were many um, instances of, of people, you know, police officers harassing individuals. One teenage boy was arrested and went into the precinct and was killed, um, you know, allegedly attacked someone and he was shot and nobody, you know, ever figured out what was going on with that. I mean, I've, um, it's not as, it's different, I, even though I think African-American women still have problems, certainly, Sandra Bland, those stories uh, everybody knows. I was on a uh, part of our book tour with my, with my co-author and we were driving along one evening and we were stopped. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, it was not, not anything, you know, serious that was, was done other than the officer asking me for my identification. I wasn't driving, he was driving. And I was just thinking about the fact that I felt so different because he's a white man. I mean, first place, they asked for my ID. I doubt if I had been his wife, a white woman, that he would have, they would have asked for my ID. I wasn't driving, but, and I teach, I teach criminal procedure. This is the thing that I teach my students. And, I, and I, it was wonderful. I got to go back the next day and say, guess what happened to me? You know, <laughs> I, I got stopped. Oh, actually, my, my co-author got stopped. I stopped with him. And, you know, the notion that I would feel, if, this, if I had been with my husband, who was a black man, I would have been much more frightened right? Um, because I wouldn't have known what would have happened. I knew they weren't going to bother him. I mean, he's there in his glasses and pullover sweater and a, and a tie. And if you went to him and said, who is that? And they'd say, that's a professor. I mean, it was obvious what he was. Not a drug dealer, but you know, why were they asking me for my ID other than that we were a racially incongruous couple? And, you know, and True to form, you know, I said, well, all right, it's nighttime. You don't know what's going to happen. And, but Just this is the 21st the century, you don't right? Know what, you don't know what's yeah. going to happen. So I, you know, I didn't have to give him my ID, but I did because I didn't want to cause any problems. But that's, that's the only time I've ever been stopped. But you just think about um, the range of, of how race implicates, you know, intrudes on every single thing that, that happens. The thing that I don't think that we think enough about, I mean, because the stop obviously is, um, is disheartening, is demoralizing. Um, we all get that. What I don't know that people understand is that when that's happening, you feel less like a citizen. 
You feel like this country is not yours and that your rights are subject to somebody else's whims. That's the part that is, is that I think that we need to understand here today, that when, when you make these sort of arbitrary stops, you are pulling folks outside of the conversation of our political structure more and more. And ultimately, they go, they go I don't want to be a part of your thing because it clearly has nothing to do with me. That's not what we want to do. That's not what we want to do. And if that was the only bad thing that came out of that, that would be enough for us to just stop that practice. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's, no one was killed that evening. But as I said, it made me think about my relationship um, as, as a woman married to a black man feeling different. You know, who mm. knows what would have happened, how they would have talked to him, what would have happened if, if it had just been the two of us. But to know that my safety and security could be more assured because I was there with a white person. Yeah. It does make that sense that it, this is his country mm. in a way that it's not my country. And I have a son who, you know, I've raised in New York and I have those feelings too. Yeah. Uh, what, what happens? How, you know, what happens when people talk to you like, mm -hmm. like you're an, a dog and you're talking to a young person and you know that it's, it's provoking, um, but you don't feel like a citizen. And that's you know, what we've been grappling with since Jefferson's time, the our African-American people part of the people, right? Uh, are we actually citizens here? Malcolm X said, you know, well, if you're a citizen, why do you have to fight for your rights? I mean, a citizen either has rights or not. Why are you fighting for them? And we're always in that position. And, you know, um, I'm curious about, um, and I'm curious about how you as a historian think about how, you know, how the narrative starts to shift, right? The narratives we prioritize mm -hmm. and how that changes. And one of the things you've, you've talked about with the research you did with Jefferson and Hemings families is that, um, you know, as you said, this, this happened in the South. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew it. Everybody was part of it. But that was oral, hist oral history. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the same as history. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like this, you know, as terrible and shocking it is, and that it continues to go on, this specter of violence, and just what you're describing, people not feeling like citizens. Um, uh, we're also, I think, seeing this and naming this, mm -hmm. m not perfectly, not completely, but in a new way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it's, it depends. We'll have to see what comes of it, because we yeah. still haven't had, in the killings, in the shootings, indictments. I mean, people right. see it, right? And we're shocked by it, and it's to a point where now it's almost, you know, you know, people are there's sort of a backlash. I don't want to see anybody else get killed. I don't want to see this anymore. It's very hard to um, indict a police officer. Yeah. I mean, we understand that people are doing a job that lots of people don't want to do, and it can be a dangerous job. And part of the way that people get paid to do that is to give them discretion and and. Judges and uh, law enforcement is given great amount of discretion, but there are so many instances you sort of wonder when people will actually we're naming it and we're seeing it. Mm -hmm. What is the next mm -hmm. step to trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to deal with this problem? Uh, so how it, to to it, recon reconcile or reckon, however we want to put it? Um, yeah, reckon and repair. Re reckon yeah. and repair. Yeah, our relations among. We, have to ha we do have police officers, we need police officers, but we also need to have some sense that African-American people 
a reality that African-American people are, in fact, citizens. Yeah. Titus, you named something that I think is really important, um, um, and you talked about it um, in the context of your painting after Ferguson, which was that called yet another fight for remembrance? Is that? Um, but the fight to remember when an issue disappears from the media, and that the and that when something disappears from the media, that's that's sh- we should not all take that as permission to forget. Which, which I think actually, you know, that's easier said than done. Like I think that to to decide not to take it as permission to forget would be a very active, intentional, kind of collecting of one's uh, intelligence. Um, and you you bring that into your into your painting. Um, I would just talk a little bit about that. How you inhabit um, this 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 dynamic. My father has been in and out of prison for much of my life. My cousins have, are still incarcerated. One of my cousins died in prison. Um, the community I come from, this is not, I don't have to try to remember not to forget. Like, it's just family. Um, when I wrote that, I was writing that for, for those for whom there is that possibility because that's not where you're from. Mm-hmm. It may not be your world, but in this moment, there's been this compassion that I've seen from folks that I didn't necessarily see it from before. And I'm saying, please, let's not let that go away. We need to keep that in, in the discourse. So it wasn't, uh, it's not something that I feel like I need to work at, uh, but, but I hope that as a whole, as a, as a country, it's something that we, we hold on to. There's a lot of issues that we have to deal with right now. I mean, yeah. as we were going through the, um, the consortium this afternoon, um, just remembering all of the oppressed groups that are struggling, struggling with different things. It feels, yeah. sometimes it feels overwhelming, but I think it's necessary to remind ourselves um, until, and we, until we take that all on and stop like, dividing them and segregating them. And, and, you know, this is the American Indian problem over here. And this is the African American problem over here. Right. And this is, you know, uh, this is the immigration problem over here. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all definitely separate issues. But what was really amazing about today was everyone coming together and saying, okay, I can help with this. I can help with this. My organiz- organization does a completely different thing, but we can help in this way. Um, I think that's when things really begin to change. It's amazing time. I mean, Du Bois said that the 20th century, the problem of the 20th century would be the color line. Mm-hmm. But we're still there. Mm-hmm. And we're in the 21st century, now it's at a global scale. Yeah. Stuff is ha- this is not just the ferment that we're talking about now. It's not just here. Yeah. It's all over the world. And so the problems of work, problems of inequality, um, the shifting alliances and so forth. It's a, it's a frightening time, but it's also a time that, you know, if we choose to be, it could be a hopeful time. You know, I think also about how we, um, one of the people I've interviewed is um, Mazarin Banaji, who mm-hmm. helped create the science of implicit bias at yes. Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we did shift the color line in terms of laws, but we didn't, we had, there's a color line in our head, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're reckoning with now. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and we didn't know that 50 years ago, the way we know it now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Titus, when I look at that, at that painting, um, the, myth, the myth of benevolence. Beneath. Hmm? Uh, beneath the myth beneath, of benevolence. Beneath the myth of benevolence, mm-hmm. which is, um, as you often do, it's, it's, one, it's, it's one painting on top of another, and it's... it's it's Thomas Jefferson, right? Um, but then the canvas is peeling away, and you see this image of a slave woman, and it's an intimate image. And in some ways, you could almost say that's a painting. I mean, that's that's a picture of implicit bias, right? The the contrast, you know, that we carry around who we are, who we present to the world, and who we believe ourselves to be, and are in some way, and then. Um, also who we are. That painting, so remember the, what I was saying before, feeling like I had invested all this in this relationship and was surprised, not by the fact that people voted for him, but that in my personal relationships, that it's some, something else was coming out. This painting was made after a conversation with those people. Um, and this is a couple of years ago. We were, we were sitting down and we were having a conversation and she's a, um, a school teacher. She was a school teacher for years, for like 30 years. And um, she taught history, AP history. And I love talking about history. And as we were sitting there talking about history, we sort of moved on to Jefferson. And I said, fascinating individual, fascinating individual. And she said, she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the issues of slavery, but at the same time, this brilliant mind, wow, just complex. And she said to me, well, there was slavery, but he was a benevolent slave owner. And, and, and I said, I, 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 I don't know what you mean by that. And, uh, and she, didn't, she didn't respond to me. And, and so I, I sort of followed up and I said, I've never want, ever heard anyone called a benevolent rapist. I've never, I've never heard that before. I've never heard anyone called a benevolent kidnapper. Um, I, I don't know what you mean. Could you please just clarify it for me? She sat in silence for at least two or three minutes, and then that was the end of the conversation. And so I got up and I left. I went to the studio and had to do something. And this is what, what came out. So that's. <laughs> when I say that I don't think of these things as political, I think of them as personal. That's why. Like that, there's a personal story behind every single one of the paintings there. And it often happens in trying to have, be in dialogue with people who think very differently than I do. Mm-hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the historian Annette Gordon-Reed and Titus Kafar. And I'm going to do that again on the radio. We will edit this. Today I'm with the historian. Today I'm with the historian Annette Gordon-Reed and the artist Titus Kafar. We're speaking about social reckoning and repair in a live event at Citizen University's National Conference in Seattle, Washington. Um, Titus, you also tell a story about um, uh, reading about George Washington and 
discovering the, the agony that he felt mm. about slavery and the questions that that raised for you and the kind of agony it raised for you. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I was saying this before, we were talking before and I was just saying, I, I struggled academically in school. I was that kid that got kicked out all the time. I got kicked out of kindergarten, literally. I, I, my GPA in high school was 0.65. Um, and, and I was that kid. I was that kid. And when, I, when something clicked in my mind, I, 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 I literally felt it. Something clicked in my mind, and I was able to see the world differently. Um, I was able to engage texts differently. Um, I felt obligated to start reading all the histories that I had ignored when I was supposed to be uh, paying attention in school. And so when I started making the work that I was making, I felt obligated to, to read more about you know, American history. And I started at the beginning <laughs> with George Washington. And I had all of these preconceived notions. Some of them were right, but some of them were wrong. What I did not expect from the reading that I had done was how much writing, in how much writing he had made it clear that this was a huge problem and that he thought that this was going to devastate the country, and yet he felt like he could do nothing about it. That was the thing that was kind of surprising to me as I read through some different journal entries and things like that. Mm -hmm. It was clear that he knew that this was wrong. Clear he knew it was wrong. Because there, there's, this, there's this thing that we do where we try to say, well, it was a different time, and you can't really judge them based on like our morals of today. You can say that if you want to. Um, it was clear that they knew that there was a problem with what was happening. There was a lot of equivocation that had to go on. There was a lot of decisions that had to be, there were a lot of excuses, but that, that shocked me. Yeah, well, and that was Jefferson too, um, talking about some of the most eloquent statements against slavery, yeah. but not, not being interested. Actually, Jefferson was interested in something else. I mean, Jefferson was interested in the United States. I mean, he helped start a country, and that is what he focused on. I mean, we, under, we sort of know that it actually was going to work, <laughs> to a point. Um, and he didn't think at the time, it wasn't clear that it was going to. Right. So he focused all of his attention on that. We look back, and we're interested in, rightly, I think, in race and slavery, but that was not his preoccupation. I mean, he mm -hmm. knew slavery was wrong, and he said that. But what he basically was obsessed about uh, was the United States of America. But I think that that, you know, the question of, well, what, so George, if you had done something, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I or, think George or, Washington, I mean, people castigate Jefferson, but the person who had, who had the most moral capital, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the person mm -hmm. who could have, there were always people who hated Jefferson, mm -hmm. so he was not a universally beloved figure. Mm -hmm. Washington, for the most part, was. If he had said something, mm -hmm. I think he, he could have had the most influence if mm -hmm. he'd spoken out. And in fact, um, one of Jefferson's secretaries who, after when Washington died, Washington did free his slaves. Uh, they were supposed to be freed upon Martha's death. Uh, and this person was somewhat critical of him. He said, you know, if he had done something when he was alive, that's the time uh, to have done something. I mean, glad that he freed the slaves, but those in, the enslaved people but um, who were at Mount Vernon, but um, a president, a person with that moral capital, if he had spoken out, would have made 
I think, a huge difference. Although, you know, I don't know that it would have made the Virginians, you know, give up their slaves right away, but I think it could have, I think it could have made a difference. So nobody in this room um, has the social capital that George Washington had then. No. And, and, it's, and I, don't, I don't actually think any individual ever again will be able no, to they have, won't. right? We, we, don't, we won't, won't have that kind we of- We don't a, have that kind of thing anymore. Kind of authority, no. We couldn't have a king again either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, you know, no, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, we know. I mean that attention is dispersed, right? We don't have these kinds of generally universally respected places where everybody is looking and seeing yeah. authority. Um, but, uh, but an implication of that, uh, you know, actually, this is you know, this 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 could be the dream of democracy, right? That it it it's back to to each of us in our lives, and I I wonder what each of you would want each of us to ask uh, of ourselves. Um, because what you just said about, you know, what you were talking about Washington and Jefferson, they, they knew what was going on. I would, well, from my, what I would like to see people do, and I think particularly white people, to do would be to challenge one another on this question of white supremacy mm-hmm. and racism. I mean, black people can't and should not have to convince white people that we are human beings who have a right to be on the earth. Um, that's, that is something, it's the only time we've made progress is when whites, a critical mass of whites say, you know, enough of this. Whatever it is I'm getting out of going along, I, I can't, and people have done that. William Lloyd Garrison did it. All through the years, you've had people who did that. I would like to see more whites do that because it's, it's demeaning. It's, it's not right for people to have to, to make the case that we are humans. And to the extent that your family members don't seem to know that or your friends don't seem to know that, I think that's something that, that's a conversation that has to take place among whites. Um, and that's, and it, it has happened, it does happen, and yeah. it, we have made progress, but it should happen more. I just wanna piggyback on that for just a second. I think when, when you say we shouldn't have to prove that we are human, I think there's probably people out here who probably think that that's a form of hyperbole probably think there's no way in the world she actually thinks that there are people who do not believe that black people are human. Let's not think about it in those direct terms for for just a second. Let's think about like what happens to black people. And let's think about the actions of other people on black people and what the implications of those actions actually are. Right? So you may say, of course black people are people. I just said people, didn't I? But like when you think about what is going on, and 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 again, I don't I don't even I don't even want this is something I want to work on. I don't even want to talk about it in, in that frame because it's not just black people. It's, it's not just black people. Mm-hmm. There are so many people who are treated as though they are not humans. I mean, like, for, let's forget about black people for just a minute, just a second, and talk about undocumented people in this country. Like, 
talk about not treat, being treated like they're, they're humans. Let's, let's talk about indigenous people. Let's not being treated like they're, treating like they're not humans. So, so you, I just want people to know that that's not hyperbole. Like forget about what people say, let's talk about what their actions are and judge them based on those actions. And based on those actions, there are people who are still questioning that fact. And this, I mean, this is also, there is this hardening um, and it's global, it's not, right? It's not just in this country, this, this specter of the other, mm-hmm. um, which the science of implicit bias tells us is always more abstract than real. Uh, and, it, and it's a response to fear, but it has real world consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this fits, but Titus, you've got this project, the, the Vesper Project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm just going to raise it and if it's, if it's a dead end, we'll, but it, it, somehow it seems to me, so this is a person, Benjamin Vesper. Is he white? That's a very good question. <laughs> you don't know? I didn't say that. Yeah, no, no, I just wondered. <laughs> okay. But that he... He became, he, attack, he, he became obsessed with your painting and, atta- and, and attacked and was destructive. Um, but it seems to me that you hospitably engaged his psychosis. <laughs> Would that, is that fair? Would you say that? That is fair. <laughs> okay. Um, and, I mean, speaking of the other, and, I mean, it is a psychosis, right? This is when our brains are, are in primal mode, lizard mode. Um, and yet it's, it's a real phenomenon. I, I don't know, I wonder if you would, I mean, you, there was this, there's something he wrote to you, he corresponded with you, and he, there's something he wrote to you um, talking about, the, he says, then I'm, the painting I'm looking at, he's talking about your painting, reaches out and takes hold of me like the day the Indian Ocean woke up and decided to claim several thousand souls. I realize now that it was a trap. The lure was well-placed just around a corner so I couldn't see it coming. Maybe it called to me. I can't say for sure now. But once I was in front of it, I felt so alone. Um, I somehow I feel like that just this exchange and then also what you did with it is a bit of a model and it's very messy. The whole thing is messy. My work has always been about narrative, about stories and conversations with people. And I, I really feel obligated. I, f- I don't know why, but I, I really do feel obligated to have conversation, to be that guy that's willing to have conversations with people who I know don't like me. That's just my thing. I just, I, I just do. Um, and it's hard sometimes. It's really painful sometimes. It's been more, usually it's hard. Like recently it's been painful. It's been really painful. Surprised at the things I've been hearing, but um, I feel like if I can figure that out a little bit, I was talking saying this a little bit earlier, if I can figure that out, if I can sit with an individual who, who feels very differently about the world than I feel, mm-hmm. and I can get to some place, get any place, that I will have touched on a piece of the solution that we're all looking for, 
in the country. And so that's, that's sort of like my motivation for putting myself through this, this crucible over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the, it's the same with that. Yeah. It's the same with the Vesper Project. It's, 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 no, it's no different. I have a friend who is always exasperated with me when I answer emails from people like that because I have the same kind of urge to do that yeah. to actually and and not all the time but sometimes we actually do get to a point where the person will begin to back down yeah and will begin to open up and even though that's just one individual it's I see that as something of a victory in a way mm-hmm. uh, rather than just totally turning off and not, I mean, some people are so nasty, I don't, I don't do that. But um, if, you ha- if I have any sense that the person is questioning, because a lot of it, a lot of times people write to you or they're like that and they're kind of lost. I mean, and, and they're, they're disturbed by something and they, they present themselves as being very, very clear and, you know, right. set, but they're really not. They're really questing in a way. And, and a conversation that you can have with them um, you may not come to a total agreement, but they're in a different place. And that's kind of why I wanted to write, because I wanted to be able to reach people mm-hmm. and those, reach those kinds of people as well, not just the people who are saying, oh, you're great, you're great, everything you're doing is wonderful, um, but people who are questing in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do people who mean well go wrong? <laughs> Let me count the ways. I mean, what? what? I, look, we all mean well. There's, there's, there's a lot of ways to go wrong, attempting to mean well, but it's better to go wrong, attempting to mean well, than go wrong, not attempting at all. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm, I have compassion for that, right? Like, um, it happens all the time. People ask these questions. You're like, wow, okay, all right. Um, let's sit down. We'll have this conversation. Um, I was sitting down, for example, with someone who, who believes very differently uh, from me about welfare. And we were talking about welfare, and, um, and they were just railing on welfare and how no one in this country should have welfare, and it's a waste of money, and this and this and that. And I said, yeah, my mother was 15 when I was born. If we didn't have welfare, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And I realized in that moment, I was the only person, the only person that this individual had ever had a conversation mm-hmm. with who was actually on the other end of their critique. Um, and they, they, they actually stopped and said, I, I, really, you? And I said, yeah, yeah. So I have a lot of compassion for going wrong, um, but let's just try. Yeah. You you don't you you got too many. Your list is too long. Oh, what do people go? Well, it's, um, people go wrong. I think in not well in, in my area, um, and not. I think well very often seeing people like Jefferson as um, a god. In a way, um, somebody who was not, who was superhuman. Um, on both sides. I'm not just talking about people, people who revile a Jefferson or people who love Jefferson are not dealing with a, with a human being, right. dealing with an abstraction and don't see uh, the foibles and the frailties of a person who was, was human. And so I think people go wrong 
uh, on both ends um, by not recognizing the humanity. As a historian, history is not just about you know, writing about people that you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's about people who were important, who did important things, and to try to illuminate their lives in a way that makes that plain to, to readers. You know, why is this person important? I mean, you know, all the different roles he played um, during this time period. And to see the strengths, but also to see the vulnerabilities. And he's, a, as an African-American person, people say, well, how can you write about this, this figure with any degree of sympathy or whatever? Yeah. But first place, there's the fact that he, he lived a very, very long time ago. So there's, there's distance. Um, but it's not, as I said, about your personal feelings about it. It's about the importance. This is someone who uh, was at the center of American life, who, who you know, crafted words that are, we consider to be our creed, American creed. Right, and right, whether, right. You know, he was, whether he failed or not, that is something that was put there, that every group of people who tries to make a place for themselves in the United States in American life, that they use it. And flaws and all, that is important. So I think not seeing the humanity, not um, making the person larger than life, ex-superhuman or evil um, incarnate is not the way to go. Yeah, in general, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Annette, here's something you wrote. The chief value of of having read lots and lots of biographies (laughs) and having seen multiple families in action in them is that whenever anyone insists that a particular thing could not have happened or a given situation could not have obtained in any domestic setting, I can think of half a dozen instances where that very thing or something akin to it or something even more bizarre happened in a family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the American family too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> does this also work for good turns? Could we surprise and outdo ourselves? By the way we walk through this moment we inhabit. Now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do think that there will be um, alliances formed that you could not have imagined would be formed. And that I might think, not have had their, felt their reasons to Might, might not have felt their yeah. reasons to do it. Uh, it's just, a, it's a very, very up in the air moment. And um, I, d- I don't think it's, it's a re- it's reason for exasperation in many ways. Um, it, it's a reason for uncertainty because it's a it's a new thing. We've never done this. As I said, we've never we've never had a president like this. Uh, a person who um, was not a part of a really a part of a party, a part of a system. Who've been mm-hmm. through all of this. So it's new territory that we're in, and I I think we can surprise ourselves. I mean, this is it's a big country, a lot of talented people. Uh, and I think a lot of people of goodwill, it's easy to fo- focus on the negative. Yeah. But I do think it's, I, I think that there's a reason to be hopeful about it. And all the social fracture that we're dealing with would have been there the oh, day yeah. after the election, whoever had won. Oh, right? whoever won. Yeah, and it, I mean, it came, it was that whole year that brought it, and the years since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we surprise ourselves? Absolutely. So... Um, I went to this this uh, creative capital event, and at the event I gave a talk. And uh, after the talk, after I gave a talk, I watched um, um, uh, Castles Heather, transgender artist who is. If you don't know the work, you just need to look it up. Castles came 
and sat with me at the table and we started talking. And I was talking about um, issues of incarceration and, and Castles was talking about the number of transgender women who were killed at the beginning of that year. Mm-hmm. And, and we were just like going back and forth and going back and forth about stuff. And we decided, you know what, we need to work together. We need to, we need to make a project together and figure out this. This is what I'm gonna do. I want you, I want you to teach me through your content and I'm gonna teach you through my content. And then we're gonna produce an exhibition together. And Castles is my dear, dear friend now. And it has completely opened my eyes again to this thing I was saying before about not dividing us up in this way, but sort of bringing us together and say, let's, 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 let's solve the whole problem. Let's try to solve the whole thing at once, see what we can do. Yeah, this is another way that we are very strange as creatures, isn't it? That a crisis <laughs> also becomes this moment of it opens possibility, generative possibilities that weren't there before as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Annette Gordon-Reed, Titus Kafar, thank you so much. And thank you for what you do in the world. 